0: Podcastle episode 204 for April 10th, 2012. The Rowan Gentleman by Holly Black and Cassandra Clare. Rated PG. Hello and welcome back to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson, and this week we're taking a road trip out to Bordertown that odd geographical spot that bridges our world with the next. Now, I'm not talking about heaven or hell. I'm talking about fairy. Bordertown, you see, is the best of both worlds because it's stuck between both of them. Most of the time, at least. This isn't the first time we've gone to Bordertown here at PodCastle. Last year, when the new Welcome to Bordertown anthology came out, we did a spotlight about it and got to feature an awesome rendition of Amal El-Motar's song, Stares in Her Hair Now the audiobook is out at Audible I think it's actually coming out the day this story goes live and so we're running a Border Town story in conjunction with it For those of you who aren't familiar with Bordertown this is the place you'd go if fairy tales existed Kids from all over the world run away to it hoping to find a different, better life But if you're not careful, Bordertown will run away with you It disappeared from our world 13 years ago I think for people who are actually living in Bordertown, that time passed in the blink of an eye. Podcastle is very proud to present this week The Rowan Gentleman by Holly Black and Cassandra Clare. Holly Black and Cassandra Clare might be two of the hardest working people in young adult fiction. Black is the author of the Curseworkers series, the latest of which, Black Heart, just came out this week. I'm going to go on the record and say, I've listened to the previous two Curse Workers books and I freaking love them. As soon as the third one's out, I'm planning on dropping a day to listen to it as well. If you like stories about con artists and the Magic Mafia, check them out. we featured two of Ms. Black's stories here at Podcastle in the Past. Episode 116, Paper Cut Scissors, about one of the coolest libraries ever. And, wow, episode 104, exactly 100 episodes ago, The Dog King. You can find her online at blackholly.com. Cassandra Clare is the superstar author of the incredibly popular Infernal Devices series, as well as the Mortal Instruments series. The latest volume that she's written is The Clockwork Prince, which came out at the end of last year. You can visit her online at CassandraClare.com. The story is read for you by Kara Grace, who last graced our podcast with CSE Cooney's Braiding the Ghosts. Kara's looking for more opportunities to do audio fiction, so if you're looking for a reader, drop her a line at kara-grace17 at live.com. Tell her Dave sent you. Once you get into border Town, do stop by the Dancing Ferret. Your first drink's on us. Enjoy the story.
1: The Ruined Gentleman by Cassandra Clare and Holly Black Ashley watches Renata take a last deep drag and then stub out her comfrey cigarette on her dressing table. It's already covered in spilled glitter, matches, paint, and the burned craters from other cigarettes. Ashley can hardly remember the fine wooden vanity Renata found on the street and dragged back to the Magic Lantern. It's suffered a lot since then. Open the box already, Renata says, pulling a lip liner from one of the drawers. On the wall, a cracked mosaic of mirror fragments reveals Ashley's face, filled with trepidation. The magic lantern was one of the first places Ashley came to when she arrived in Border Town. She'd sit in the back and watch whatever was playing or doze because she was sure she'd be safe. Once Elaine bach Glyman took over from O'Malley and started casting for simultaneous live shows, Ashley knew that she wanted to be on that stage more than anything. Ashley loves working at the Magic Lantern. Her hands hesitate over the ribbon in the large package, the one woven with sprigs of rosemary and ragwort. She knows the more gifts Elaine gives her, the closer she is to being asked to leave. He really likes you, says Ernata. Elaine? Ashley laughs. No, he just likes the chase. It gives him something to do when he's not lying around in that scroungy old sofa, like... She was going to say a prince in a fairy tale, but realizes how silly that sounds, considering what Elaine is. She yanks at the ribbon instead, and as it comes apart, the box comes apart cleverly, too, shedding glittering petals. Inside is a folded length of fabric. She picks it up, and it unrolls in her hands. A scarf, ice white, as light as cobwebs and spangled here and there with bits of shimmer. Not as light as sequins or as heavy as actual jewels, They are like bits of trapped light, like the sun sparking off an icicle. Ooh, says Renata. Pretty. Of course it's pretty. Everything Elaine gives her is pretty. Elves are incapable of giving ugly presents. It offends their sense of aesthetics. Ashley's cheap, mostly bare room in the crash space she shares with most of the other actors at the magic lantern is filled with pretty things Elaine has given her silk slippers too delicate to actually wear, a brooch that seems to trap the colors of the mad river inside it, a star-like prism that fills her room with rainbows. Some day he will ask to be given something in return for all these presents. Perhaps her heart, or maybe the rest of her. Possibly both. I shouldn't keep it, Ashley says, although she knows she will. She sets the box aside, and start to slick back her short, black hair so that none of it will be visible underneath her long, honey-brown wig. It's not dress rehearsal yet, but Ashley has learned from experience that wigs take more than one performance to get used to. You can't. There's probably a serious violation of Elfin custom. Maybe even a deadly insult. Renata smiles as she spreads lipstick over her already bright mouth. Besides, Elaine is so cheap. You see that new tie guy? He's so clearly detoxing from the Mad River water, you can smell it when he sweats. Elaine never hires anyone but addicts, criminals, and weirdos. You, my dear, are his one indulgence. An indulgence. It is strange to be thought of that way. Elaine certainly doesn't spend his money, and Ashley knows he has to have quite a lot, since he comes from one of those fancy true-blood families with their big houses up on Dragon's Tooth Hill. He doesn't spend his money on the Magic Lantern. She isn't even entirely sure why he bought it. Maybe some kind of misbegotten rebellion against his seldom-mentioned father. The dingy glamour of the Magic Lantern is a far cry from the highborn elegance of the truebloods. It's the only place in town that even tries to show movies. With Border Town's electricity being the way it is, the film projectors only work about half the time, even with spell boxes in place. So that the stories won't be interrupted, Elaine employs a cast of real-life actors who act out the movies as they take place in front of the screen, and whose performances continue in the event of electricity failure. Over the months, along with presents, Elaine has given Ashley some of the best parts. She's been Mia from Pulp Fiction, Laura from Dr. Zivago, Thalma from Thalma and Louise. The Troop acted the same pieces over and over, because those are the film reels they were able to obtain. But with The Way reopened, there's a flood of newer material. The Matrix, Titanic, the new set of the Star Wars movies, though no one likes those, and Lord of the Rings, which Elaine seems to think is a comedy. For their first new production, he picked one called Pirates of the Caribbean. The why an elf would be a fan of a film based on a theme park ride is unclear. When Ashley and Renata get to the stage, the rest of the cast is already there, looking at the screen with awe. There's a flood of new technology, too. One of the tech guys must have gotten the little machine that plays shining silver discs to finally work. Waves crash against the hull of the ship, and the arm of a monstrous octopus twists towards it, suckers undulating. The actors gasp in unison. Kit, who plays nearly all of the leading male roles because of his square jaw and long legs, spots Ashley. He waves her over. It's going to be a good show, he says, bouncing from one foot to another with barely contained glee. But I wish I was playing Jack. He gets all the best lines. But not the girl, Ashley says with a small smile. They kissed a few times in front of a packed house when she played Thelma and he played the hitchhiking thief, so she figures it's okay to flirt with him. Kissing sets the precedent. Besides, he's never given her a thing. There's a sequel, says Kit easily. Ashley glances toward the wings of the stage where Elaine reclines on a scavenged couch. Beautiful in a way no human can be beautiful. His eyes are barely open. He dozes, barely seeming to register when the movie finishes. At first, she thought he didn't care when she flirted with other people in front of him. Now, she realizes he doesn't even notice. Elaine looks like what he is. A high-born elf, slumming until he gets bored with human things and moves back to the realm to do whatever it is elves do there. Ashley likes Elaine. He is good-humored for an elf. Nothing ever bothers him much. He's beautiful. He gives her good parts, and he sleeps a lot, like a cat. She likes him, but she doesn't respect him. It's hard to respect someone who doesn't care about anything. Even the way he courts her is lazy. Elaine waves an arm (laughs) languidly from the couch. Go on, then, he says. Rehearse only five days until opening night. He yawns and closes his eyes again. Inspiring, mutters Renata. They take their places on stage. They are rehearsing the scene where Elizabeth, Ashley's character, is saved from drowning by Jack. The ocean is represented by a blue circle painted on the floor. Ashley pretends to gasp and tumble into it and is hauled out by Nat, the skinny teenager to whom Elaine is inexplicably given the role of the pirate captain. His wig of multiple black braids has slipped to one side and his eyeliner is smeared. He presses down hard on Ashley's chest, pretending to revive her. Ouch! Ashley shakes her head. Not so hard there, big fella. Sorry. Nat hangs his head. He's one of the nicest members of the troupe, even if he isn't a very good actor. He's got big, wide eyes like a startled baby animal and reminds Ashley of her little brother back in the world. A swaggering, half-mad Jack Sparrow, he is not. Troop finishes the scene. No one forgets their lines so badly that they have to wake up Elaine to paw through the script. He rouses halfway through anyway to argue with himself about some blocking, but on the whole, everything is going according to schedule. Until the bleeding girl staggers in. Everyone freezes. Ashley scrambles up from the floor. When no one else does anything, she moves toward the girl who has collapsed on the ground. Slowly, the others gather around. Everyone, except Elaine, who hasn't moved from his couch. Although he is at least sitting up, watching what's going on through slitted, silvery eyes. The first thing Ashley notices as she drops down beside the girl is that she's obviously a haffy. The pointed ears, the white blonde hair, and the pale eyes are married with a human softness. The second thing Ashley notices is that there's a lot of blood. It's already starting to pool under the girl. Get a doctor! Renata yells, get someone! The girl blinks once heavily and opens her mouth. She groans, "Oh, Robert said to wait for the wrong gentleman, but I was too scared i uh, uh, she manages to say, and gives a terrible choking cough. Red dust comes from her throat and a fine powder that dusts her clothes, sticking to her lips and cutting off any further speech. The silver suits are coming someone shouts. The words come from far away. Ashley is focused on the girl who is stilled. Her eyes go dull, her mouth slack, nothing moves but the tide of blood. All of you, Elaine says in a voice she has never heard him use. I want all of you here right now. For a split second the cast just stares, shocked motionless by this new Elaine. Then the actors trickle off the stage. Some casting glances back at the dead happy girl on the floor as they go, some studiously avoiding the sight. Renata is holding on to Kit's arm. Nat keeps his eyes on the floor, his thin shoulders hunched. Reluctantly, Ashley gets to her feet. It's hard to tear herself away from the girl's sightless eyes. Hard not to want to smooth her hair and pillow her head, even now that it doesn't matter. Even now, when the girl can't be uncomfortable. Ashley follows them as far as the stage exit and then turns around, hesitating at the curtain. Elaine has gotten up off his couch and is standing over the dead girl. His long hair hides his expression. He bends down as the front doors start reverberating with a loud pounding. He touches the girl's lips and then brings that finger to his mouth. Someone is shouting for the doors to be opened. It's got to be the silver suits. With a sigh, Elaine goes to let them in. This is my fault, a voice near her says, keeping his voice low. Ashley starts. One of the tech guys crouches in the shadows, peering toward where a single silver suit and two medics swarm around the girl's body. It takes her a moment to recall his name. Tristan. He was the one who painted the blue circle on the floor. He's got a shaved head that makes him look older than he is, and he wears sunglasses constantly, even indoors. What do you mean? She whispers back. Ashley doesn't think that he's much older than she is. He might be 20 at most. Tristan shrugs his shoulders. Ashley wonders if there was time for him to stab the girl and then come in the back way. She wonders if she's crouched beside a murderer. She wonders why in the world Elaine tasted the girl's blood. Across the room, Elaine is speaking to the police. Is she truly dead? The silver suit is enough, tall and slim. He nods. Did you see anyone? Hear anything?" Elaine shakes his head. Her scream. Nothing more. He doesn't care about the girl. Her death is an annoyance, an interruption to his daydreams. But Ashley remembers being a girl with nowhere to go and no one to care about her. She could easily have wound up dead. And Elaine would have been just as bored by her corpse. I heard her, Ashley says, coming out of the shadows quickly. So that if Tristan meant to murder her too, he'll have to do it in front of the silver suits. She said something about the Rowan gentleman. Were you here when the body was found? The silver suit asks. I was standing right next to her, says Ashley, nodding. That's why I heard her and he didn't. The silver suit writes something on his pad. But then you left? Did you leave before or after she died? Was anyone else present? Ashley looks around the room like she might find a good answer written on the crumbling plaster or threadbare theater chairs. She can't say it was because Elaine cleared the theater. That would make it sound like the magic lantern had something to hide. Actresses are so dramatic, Elaine says, yawning hugely. (sighs) Always rushing from rooms, declaring they're about to faint at the sight of blood. Ashley levels a glare in Elaine's direction, he's busy studying the silver suit's boots as if he's considering buying a pair for himself. So all she said was, "The gentleman." The silver suit asks, "Have you any idea what she meant?" The Rowan gentleman, the guy with the crazy mask and the cloak, right? Ashley had heard whispers about the Rowan gentleman, but they're as muddled as her explanation—stories and tossed-off rumors that have either made him sound like a psychopath luring those already down in their luck into some dark basement to be chopped up into pieces, or a saint, spiriting them off to his own personal sanctuary to be fitted with new identities and safe passage to the world or the realm. People who are in trouble or with the war and need help, or are in debt to the bloods or whatever, they all want to believe that someone will save them. Ashley figures they better save themselves. She's pretty sure that the Roman gentleman is either a myth or a dangerous lunatic. The medics lift the dead girl carefully onto a gurney. The silver suit's notes Ashley and Elaine's full names. He notes other things, too, although Ashley isn't sure what those things are. Clues, she hopes. Your father's worried about you, the elf tells Elaine as he starts toward the doors. Ashley sees a muscle of Elaine's back tighten, but his voice is light as ever. Give him my best. When the silver suit is gone, Ashley sinks down into one of the theater chairs in relief. "'That was awful,' she says. "'Come to dinner with me tonight,' Elaine says suddenly. He's standing with his back to her, still looking at the doorway to the ticket counter in the street. "'I can't,' Ashley says. "'Not after this. I'm sorry. I just can't.' She stands up. "'Thanks for the scarf, though.' Elaine does not reply. The lights are dim on Carnival Street when Ashley lets herself out of the magic lantern. Elaine offered to walk her home, but she refused wanting to be alone. She keeps seeing the happy girl bleeding and dying on the warped floorboards of the stage. Her heels click on the cobblestones as she walks in and out of the pools of electric light cast by the street lamps. The light isn't very reliable, and everything on either side of her slides away into shadow. Ashley pulls her coat closer around her, wondering if she should have taken up a lane on his offer at all. She's about to turn the corner onto Mock Avenue when a hand reaches out from the darkness and grabs her. All of a sudden, she's being shoved roughly up against a dirty wall in a narrow alley. She's too surprised to scream. The guy holding her there is tall, maybe six feet. Ashley can hear faint music in the distance, probably coming up from the dancing fair of the street. The guy smells like sweat and metal and rage. I don't have anything valuable, Ashley babbles. Money or or anything? He shakes her, slamming her back against the wall. Where's Lydia? I saw her go into your crappy little theater. I don't know anyone named Lydia. She's blonde, a halfy, pretty, dead. Ashley doesn't mean the word to come out so cold and flat, but fear has robbed her voice of emotion. She was already hurt when she came in. We tried to help, but there wasn't anything we could do. The man swears viciously. Did the silver suits come? Ashley nods. The man turns his head aside and spits. He's human, with slick back, greasy hair and bloodshot gray eyes. He's got stubble, and he smells like unfamiliar herbs. Something bitter and weird. What about Robert? He says. Where's he? I don't know any... Ashley starts. The man slams her head against the wall again, this time hard enough for her vision to go bright with pain. I'm s- sorry, she stammers, hoping that she can act her way out of this. It doesn't matter that she doesn't know a Robert. The man believes she does. She just has to do what he expects. Robert said he needed a drink. Maybe the factory or O'Donohue's, I really, honestly don't know. Please, please don't hurt me. Tears slide down her cheeks. The saddest thing that ever happened to you, her mother used to say. The most frustrating. The worst. Since then, Ashley's been an expert at crying. She's never had to use glycerin eye drops. Not even once. The man lets go of her arm and Ashley stumbles back, wiping her eyes. If you see him before I do, the man says, you tell him that me and my boys are looking for him. Tell him Nigel Barrow isn't looking for him, and if he doesn't come and find me, I'm going to burn down the theater with him in it. Ashley is still shaking as she closes the front door of the apartment. It's the whole floor of what used to be a warehouse. It's been partitioned off into rooms with cheap drywall here and there, or sometimes a Japanese screen, or some printed Indian cotton hanging from tacks on the ceiling. There's a big shared kitchen, a somewhat smaller shared bathroom, Even a room of shared computers whose lights blink and glimmer and fade along with the unpredictable electricity. This is where Ashley's lived since she came to work in the Magic Lantern. Lots of the actors use the squat, along with some of the tech folks. It's safer than anywhere she's slept before. A bunch of others are in the kitchen already, sitting around the big wooden table. It was a door once in a previous life, now laid across stacked concrete blocks, and they greet her as she comes in. You look all shaken up, says Renata pushing a mug of hot tea in her direction. We were just talking about the dead girl at the theater. Someone grabbed me on the way home, Ashley says, gulping back at the tea, tasting lemon balm and rose hips. It burns her tongue, but she's glad of the distraction from the throbbing of her head and the way her eyes are filling with tears again. He was looking for her. He didn't know that she'd... She'd... Nat comes around the table and puts his thin arms around her. We're here, he says. Everything's going to be okay. No, Ashley says, slightly hysterical. It's not. The man said he would burn down the theater to get to Robert, but there isn't any Robert, and Elaine won't care. He'll just buy something else that amuses him. But the theater? The theater will be gone. Calm down, says Kit, standing up. Breathe. A moment later, Nat, Kit, and Renata are hugging her, all at the same time, which should be ridiculous, but she can feel herself relaxing. Oh, you poor thing, Renata says. Have you seen this guy before? Nat asks. Hanging around the theater, maybe? Ashley shakes his head. He said his name was Nigel Barrow, though, and Robert... Robert was the name, the girl Lydia said before she died. She said, Robert told me to wait for the Rowan gentleman. Why didn't she then? Renata asks, startling Ashley with the sharpness of her tone. I'm sorry, I didn't mean it like that. She says after she notices Ashley's expression. It's just that I don't know her and all I care about is that you got hurt. The Rowan Gentleman isn't real, says Ashley. Waiting for him is like waiting for Santa Claus to save you or the Tooth Fairy. Once upon a time, Ashley had waited for someone to save her. She waited in the offices of agents while her mother discussed her commercial potential She waited in front of the cameras, where she had to hold painful poses and suck in her gut. She waited on sound stages while directors yelled at her mother for drunkenly disrupting rehearsal. She waited and waited until one day she saw herself in the mirror, saw her own hollow eyes and slack mouth. That was the day she couldn't wait anymore. "'What I like about you,' Elaine had said to her the first time she tried out for one of his productions. Is that you never seem to feel much of anything when you're not on stage, but up there, you feel everything. It's called acting, she told him. Ashley wonders if he would say the same thing about her now. If you wake at midnight and hear a horse's feet, Renata intoned delight in her voice, don't go drawing black the blind or looking in the street. Them that ask no questions isn't told a lie. Watch the wall, my darling, while the gentlemen go by. A boiled and lead song, Kit says. It's Kipling, you heathen. Renata takes a bottle of nettle wine out from one of the stacked boxes they use like cabinets. Ashley needs a drink, and I need one too, so we're opening this, and when we're done, we'll open three more like it. When Ashley finally goes to bed, it's three in the morning, and her throat is hoarse from talking and drinking cheap nettle wine. Her room is one of the partitioned spaces without windows. She lies on top of her bedspread in the stuffy, dank air, tossing and turning, unable to get the dead girl's face out of her mind. Finally, she gets to her feet and pads toward the kitchen, wanting to splash some cold water on her cheeks. She can tell from the gray light coming in through the window over the sink that it's almost dawn. Just as she turns off the water, she hears a sound someone moving through the apartment. Not sure why exactly, she steps back into the shadows, watching as the person reaches the front door. It's Tristan, and he has a rucksack slung over one shoulder. He looks around furtively before opening the door and slipping outside into the hallway. All their shoes are lined up by the front door. Ashley finds a pair of ballet flats that she's pretty sure are hers and jams her feet into them. Otherwise, she's wearing a tank top and flannel pants, but there's no time to change and weirder outfits have certainly been seen in Bordertown. She grabs her keys and slips out the door after Tristan. She's never followed anyone before, so she's pretty impressed with herself that he doesn't seem to notice her as she darts in and out of doorways, keeping to the shadows as the sun rises, turning the gray sky to a hollow blue. He's taking a familiar route down Mach to Carnival, and she's starting to feel foolish as they near the magic lantern. It doesn't look like Tristan is up to anything sinister besides getting to work really, really early. As he heads for the backstage door and fumbles with the key, she considers going back to the squat and lying down for a few more hours. The adrenaline is starting to ebb and she finds herself exhausted. Ashley decides she can nap on one of the couches in the back of the theater. Elaine always does. They must be comfortable. Tristan disappears through the door, and even though Ashley figures that there's no reason to sneak anymore, she goes around to the front and unlocks that door, pushing it open slowly, stopping for a long moment with each creak. Elaine lives above the magic lantern and, like most elves, is a light sleeper. She creeps through the darkened theater and through the heavy velvet curtains at the back of the stage. As she walks toward the green room, she hears a rustling coming from the wardrobe area. Curious again, she slips inside and goes toward the back of the room, where the three-way mirrors are. There she stops, ducking instinctively behind a hanging row of old-fashioned dresses. Peering between them, she can see Tristan, tying on the black, Long-sleeved outfit of the Rowan Gentleman, complete with flowing cloak. The berry-red half-mask hangs around his neck. What foolishness is this? It's Elaine's voice. Ashley jumps and pulls farther back into the shadows. Elaine, striding into the room, seems not at all surprised to see Tristan dressed like a lunatic who's not supposed to be real. We planned no... he says. Tristan cuts him off. I thought I could handle things with Lydia. All this is happening because of me. It's my fault. I've got to make it right. Don't be ridiculous, Robert, Elaine says. And Ashley has to swallow her gasp. Because if Elaine knew that Tristan was really Robert all along, why did he hide that from the silver suit? From her? We all make mistakes. Going after Nigel Barrow alone will solve nothing. Elaine knows the name of the man who grabbed me? Ashley thinks in a daze. We've got to do something or more kids are going to die, says Tristan. Ashley refuses to start thinking of him as Robert. She's confused enough as it is. Elaine paces back and forth. He moves with a restless energy, so utterly unlike his usual self that, for a moment, Ashley wonders if it's him at all. "'We don't know what he's doing,' Elaine says languidly. His voice, at least, is the same. "'Lydia was supposed to be the one who would tell us, but she never got the chance. You wouldn't want us to go in there unprepared.' We're supposed to be the savers of the lost, not punishers of those who do wrong. The silver suits can sort them out. He roughed up Ashley, says Tristan, in an alley near Mock Avenue. Tried to get her to tell him where I, Robert, was. Ashley turns. There's a real concern on his face and in his voice, making it sharp. Is she well? How badly was she hurt? Tristan looks surprised at the vehemence in Elaine's tone. She wasn't hurt, just shaken up. It means he's coming after us. Our best chance is to go after him first. I told her I'd walk her home, Elaine mutters. And Ashley realizes he is still talking about her. She wouldn't have expected him to care that much. Are you listening to me, Elaine? We have to go after Barrow and his crew before he comes to the Magic Lantern and burns it down. I hear you, and I agree. Elaine sounds grim. Meet me tonight by the Mad River. There's an alley across from Dragon's Claw Bridge, which... "'with lots of useful shadows. "'We'll search Nigel's warehouse, see what he's been up to. "'Tell the other eighteen to be ready in case we have need of them.' "'The other eighteen. "'Ashley is so stunned she barely hears Tristan's muttered acknowledgement. "'She presses herself back into the shadows just before he rushes past, "'letting himself out of the theater's back door. "'When it closes behind him, she peeks out again, but Elaine is already gone. "'Everything looks as it always does.' except for a trunk shoved haphazardly back in place. Nothing she would have noticed before. She drags it out from the wall. The loose floorboard is obvious, and when she pulls that up, more than two dozen ruined gentlemen costumes are revealed. Ashley slips out the door after Tristan, her heart pounding in her chest, a cloak and mask in her arms. Having barely slept the night before, Ashley naps fitfully through the day before rising at sundown. The apartment is empty, Everyone else is taking advantage of the night off. Everyone but Tristan, and she knows where he is. She dresses herself carefully in a gentleman's outfit. The material is soft and flexible, the trousers only a little too long. She folds them over at the waist and ties her hair back, tucking it up under the hood of the cloak. In Kit's cubicle, she finds a prop sword that could pass for the real thing and tucks it against her side beneath the cloak. She feels the same shivery excitement she often feels before stepping out on stage ready to throw herself into a park, to embrace someone else's life. Ashley finds Dragon's Claw Bridge easily and the alley across from it. It is as shadowy as Elaine had promised, so shadowy that at first she doesn't see him. When he steps out from the darkness in his black cloak and red mask, she nearly yelps out loud. He actually does look frightening. He ducks his head in greeting. Tristan, are you ready? Ashley is speechless. This is not how she thought it would go at all. She thought she would arrive and confront them both, not that Elaine would mistake her for Tristan. Where is Tristan? She opens her mouth, but no words come out. Elaine takes her silence for agreement. All right, then. I'll take point. He steps in front of her. What she had thought of before as a lazy stride, now has a fluid and deadly grace. Ashley follows him through the street, copying the way he tips his head forward so the hood of the cloak hides his mask. Her fingers go to the pommel of Kit's fake sword, Closing around it as though it were real. Unless Nigel Barrow is afraid of splinters, the sword is useless, and so is she. Just as she convinces herself to tell Elaine the truth, he slips into a doorway. I walked by before, he says, sticking a pin into the lock. No one home, lucky us. Remember we touched nothing. We're just here to find out what's going on. Ashley nods once, and then Elaine turns the knob, leaning his shoulder against the door and is inside. Olay, she whispers, trying to make her voice sound low, like Tristan's. Shh, he says, cutting her off and motioning her inside. It's a big, mostly empty room lit by moonlight. There's a reek of sweat and the strong smell of mad river water. It's hot, almost swampy, and it's not hard to see why. There's a row of fireplaces along one wall. Fires burn in each of them, heating the bottoms of massive iron cauldrons. What is this? Elaine says, clearly baffled. What are they doing here? Ashley shakes her head and shrugs, not daring to speak. She's in it too far now, she realizes. She has to keep pretending to be Tristan unless she wants to endanger them both. Instead, she points at the long wooden table that runs the length of the room's center. Stacked on the table are glassine packets of reddish dust, the same substance the girl in the theater coughed up when she died. Elaine moves gracefully over to the table, running his hands over the packets. Could it be? He looks up, and though his expression is hidden by the half-mask, Ashley can tell he's angry. They're dehydrating mad river water, he says, processing it, turning it into a drug you can easily smug into the world. Lydia, the half girl, says Ashley. They must have been using her as a mule. That's why she coughed up powder when she died. Elaine stands frozen, staring at her, and Ashley realizes with a sinking feeling that she has forgotten to disguise her voice. Ashley? He says in a voice that doesn't sound like his own. He stands stock still. Is it you? She's trying to think of how to reply when the doors burst open and Nigel's crew swarms into the room. It is her fault. All her fault. As Ashley sits in the hot, stinking darkness, pulling at the rope binding her wrist, waiting for Elaine to wake up, hoping Elaine will wake up. That's all she can think about. He was shocked, staring at her off-balance. One of Nigel's men ran at Ashley, and instead of trying to get out of there, Elaine threw a knife at him. It hit, but a moment later the rest of them were on him. It was shocking how many he took down. Maybe ten? Some of them, looking as though they might not get back up again. Ten wasn't enough. Elaine stirs finally and groans a little. They are tied to sturdy wooden posts in what Ashley has guessed is a storage room. They are only a few feet from each other. Elaine raises his head and looks at her. His face is bloodstained, bruises blooming on his cheek. I'm so sorry, she says, her voice breaking. So sorry, I don't know what I was thinking. I didn't mean to. Ellen makes a harsh sound that it takes her a moment to recognize his laughter. (laughs) Not much surprises me these days, he says. But you, Ashley, are always a surprise. I overheard you and Tristan... "'Robert, I guess, talking in the wardrobe room,' she says. First I thought he was the Rowan Gentleman. "'Then I thought maybe you both were.' "'There are twenty of us,' says Elaine, matter-of-factly. Nineteen members and one to lead them. "'And that's you,' Ashley says. "'And that is me.' "'And all this time, I never thought you cared about anything,' she marvels. "'Elaine says nothing to that. "'Why do you do it?' "'Her voice drops a level, as if someone might be listening.' as if she's asking him to tell her a secret, which she supposes she is. I mean, you're helping humans, right? Humans and halfies? You're getting them out of border town when they're in trouble. Why? He's quiet for a long moment. When I grew up, my parents had no use for humans, save as servants. They treated those servants very poorly, though the servants seldom complained of it. Glamour can make a bare closet seem like a bed heaped in silk can make the most meager, most foul food, taste like roasted duckling and spiced cake. But I saw them as they were. Thin, covered in sores. Some worse than that. Eventually, it was a game between my parents and me. How many servants could I smuggle out without getting caught? I got quite skilled at it. So skilled, they asked me to leave. They procured the magic lantern on the condition that i never return. Ashley shudders. Sure, her mom had been drunk and a mess, but she'd never thrown Ashley out, never paid her to leave. Why there, of all places. When I was little, I would ask for stories from my human nannies, and I was told marvelous ones. Big, epic, grand adventures. Sometimes a nanny would get the maids or a butler to help her act them out. It was only later that I realized those stories weren't written down in any book. They were films. "'Casablanca, the Wolfman, mm-hmm. Star Wars. "'Ashley laughs a little at the last one, but it isn't really funny. "'It's sad. "'She thinks how lonely he must have been. "'A child up in one of those big houses on Dragon's Tooth Hill left alone most of the time with no one but humans "'who must have been half-crazy by then to take care of him. "'She hopes they loved him more than his parents did. "'They must have to have made him so determined to pay them back somehow.' Ashley wishes she could reach across the darkness and touch his hand. His eyes have a silvery shine as he meets her gaze. Why did you give me all those presents, she asks. Before he can answer, the door swings open. Ashley yelps in surprise. A tall man in the costume of the ruined gentleman is there, a mask over half his face. Tristan? Ashley says quietly. The gentleman looks from Elaine to Ashley and then back again. Finally, he pulls his mask off. It's not Tristan, but Kit. You told her? Kit asks, sounding surprisingly petulant. She followed me, Elaine says, and seems to have stolen your sword too, so please don't start on how I should have been more careful. Kit raises his eyebrows. When he didn't show up, Tristan called in the troops. I think we got most of them. Quite a laboratory downstairs. I wonder how much stuff made it to the world already, Elaine says, or if it works so far from the realm. Let's hope not, Kit says. Because Nigel is no genius. If he's thought of it, others have too. Elaine grunts. Now, perhaps you could undie me? Ugh. Got him. Kit calls back into the hallway, and two more masked gentlemen, one slight enough to be a girl, come into the doorway. Kit makes quick work of Ashley's bonds, and the other two cut Elaine free. Ashley watches them get up, grabbing for the window frame for support. Under the cape, she is sure he is a mass of bruises. He moves carefully out in the hall and down the stairs, a parody of his affected laziness. Nigel and a few other men are tied to chairs, blindfolded and gagged. Another gentleman is carefully writing a letter to the silver suits on the wall, with arrows pointing to the no longer boiling cauldrons, to the bags, and finally to the men. As Elaine steps into the center of the room, the dozen or so masked gentlemen walk toward him, exclaiming loudly. Then they see Ashley, see the cloak on her shoulders and her bare face, and stop. Elaine just smiles and reaches into his pocket. "'You're a gentleman tonight,' he says. "'Would you like to cast the berries?' "'It's intimidating to be stared at by a bunch of masked people.' "'Uh, sure,' Ashley says. Elaine passes the handful to her. They are bright red and hard like rubies. "'I just... throw them?' she asks. "'You just throw them,' says Tristan, looking slightly aggrieved. She can't blame him. He probably panicked when he got to the meeting place and there was no sign of Elaine.' She'll have to apologize to him properly later. Ashley casts the berries high and wide, and they land near one of the fireplaces. That is the signal for the group to disperse. For one by one, they slip quietly out of the doors until only Elaine, Ashley, and Kit are left. I'm heading back to the apartment, says Kit, leaning around the door. Do you want to come? Let me accompany Ashley home, says Elaine, in a voice that brooks no disagreement. Kit shrugs. Have it your way, he says, and is gone. Ashley walks slowly, matching her pace to Elaine's. He is still wincing, but he doesn't seem to have sustained any serious injuries. It's close to dawn and the sky is lightning, the mad river turning from black to red. I'm sorry, Ashley says after the silence stretches too long. I guess I never really believed in the ruined gentleman because I just couldn't believe there was someone like that. Someone who helps people for the sake of helping them? I think I came here tonight expecting to find out it was some kind of elaborate joke, but it isn't. This is really what you do. It really is, Elaine says. But don't be sorry for not believing. Sometimes I hardly believe it myself. But now, Ashley pauses. But she knows she has to go ahead and say it. The truth. Now I'm afraid you won't let me be one of you because I acted crazy and messed up your plan tonight. Elaine laughs. The Rowan gentlemen are. All of us, to the one. Mad as cats. We don't recruit people known for making reasonable decisions. We're all crazy, and if you're crazy too, then I'm happy to know it. Does that mean I'm recruited? Ashley asks. Maybe. He gives her a complicated smile. If you like, but before you agree, I should tell you that those gifts, the shoes, the shawl, they were given to you with less than noble intentions. You mean you wanted to get in my pants? Ashley grins. She expects him to smile, too, but he doesn't. I try to maintain a certain reputation. Incompetent, lazy, spoiled. And so I thought that courting a girl who cared nothing for me would fit. Ashley frowns. You thought that I... Love can't be bought, Malene says. And you quite smartly distrusted me for trying. And now, she asks. Now I am ashamed, he answers. I chose both poorly and too well when I courted you. Poorly because you saw right through my artifice, but too well because now that I wish to declare my true admiration, I must do so knowing that you have little reason to believe me. So if you were courting me for real, there would be no presents, no dinner, no nothing? Elaine laughs. Perhaps I have no knowledge of courtship, false or true. Ashley gently bumps against his side. Maybe I could help you learn. Why don't you let me start by buying you something? He raises his eyebrows. Buying me something? It won't be anything fancy like nine million thread count sheets or exotic bath beads from the realm, she warns him. I was thinking we should start small. I could buy you breakfast. Breakfast? Breakfast A Cafe tremolo. You, me, muffins, a couple of espressos, and an ice pack for your face? Elaine's smile is as wide as the sunrise. I'd like that.
0: And welcome back. We've got another Border Town story coming in the next couple of months. Additionally, the Welcome for Bordertown audiobook, the whole collection of stories from folks like Ellen Kushner and Terry Wendling, Charles Delint, Tim Pratt, and Catherine Invalente should be up at Audible.com as I speak. If you want more right now, you can jump on over to our sister podcast, Escape Pod, which last year ran Cory Doctorow's very fun story, Shannon's Law, back in episode 291. I hear the new ebooks of the original Border Town stories should be out very soon. And I'm about as happy as an actor during Curtain Call to get some of that. Check it out, and run away. Feedback this week is for episode 198, The Second Voyage of Sinbad the Seaman, read for you by our own merchant of many voices, Wilson Foley. Not a whole lot of discussion on classic Sinbad, although people generally did seem to enjoy it, and everyone praised Wilson's reading of the material, like Fenrix, who said, I want to compliment the great reading. I imagined everything in this story as if it were animated by Ray Harryhausen. Ray and Sinbad and now Wilson will permanently be linked in my head. An infinite monkey said, hooray, Sinbad, Islam's first superhero or super adventurer, along with rocks and rhinos. It was good to hear it and, well, not the original, but as close as those of us who can't read Arabic are probably going to get. As usual, Mr. Folly makes Victorian literary English digestible. Want more? There are, after all, 1,001 nights. <laughs> Thanks so much for those comments. Swing on by forum.escapeartist.net and let us know what you thought of this week's story. And if you're so inclined, please visit podcastle.org and drop some money in our tip jar via PayPal. Your donations make it possible for us to pay our authors so we can bring stories like this one to you. If you can't donate, maybe blog, tweet, write a review on iTunes for us, or tell a friend. Thank you. Well, that was our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of all of us at PodCastle, Anne Leckie, Peter Wood, Anna Schwend, and myself, thank you so much for letting us all share another story with you. We'll be back next time with Samantha Henderson's Outlander. Until then, remember, Border Town lives. See you in a week. Be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod, and if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Jim Henson said, As children, we all live in a world of imagination, of fantasy, and for some of us, that world of make-believe continues into adulthood.